Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I am the senior pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I will be moderating today's forum. The forum originates from Westminster Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Morris Dees as the first speaker of the Westminster Town Hall Forum's 2001 winter-spring season. We are honored to have Mr. D speak to us today on Responding to Hate, Voices of Hope and Tolerance. Morris Dees is the co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama, for which he also serves as Chief Trial Counsel. He has been a champion of justice, a teacher of tolerance for his entire adult life. Over the course of his career, Dees has used the law as a sword in his battle against hatred and prejudice. In the 1980s, he bankrupted the KKK with a series of historic lawsuits. In a landmark trial, Morris Dees won a $6.3 million judgment against the Aryan Nation in September of 2000. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which Mr. Dees co-founded in 1971, 30 years ago, combats intolerance, discrimination, and hate through the use of litigation and education. Under the leadership of Mr. Dees, who serves as chair of the executive committee for the center, the SPLC has developed a well-regarded education program called Teaching Tolerance. Mr. Dees was also instrumental in spurring construction of a civil rights memorial, which commemorates the 40 women, men, and children who lost their lives during the early years of the civil rights movement. Most recently, Morris Dees has devoted much of his time to educating the American public about radical militia movements. In his book, Gathering Storm, Mr. Dees explores the dangers these groups represent. A graduate of the University of Alabama, Morris Dees has received numerous awards, including Trial Lawyer of the Year and the National Education Association's Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Award. Please join me in welcoming Morris Dees. to be in Garrison Keeler country I find that it's not a whole lot different than the little crossroads cotton community I grew up in in Alabama and this church is not a lot different from that little hundred member Baptist church I went to as a boy because I noticed people still sit in the back and the front rows are empty but I did learn a lot at that church and I'm feel very confident to be in the, the surroundings of this beautiful sanctuary today as I remember one of my Sunday school teachers there she was also my fifth and sixth grade teacher Mrs. Virabel Johnson and she was very dedicated to be sure that we grew up with good moral lessons of life it's hard to tell in 1948 when she was my teacher there the difference between church and school because every day we had Bible verses in both places. But I remember she was very set on us not drinking alcoholic beverages. And one day she was going on and on and I can't remember whether it was in the Sunday school class or whether it was in school about this subject. And I noticed on her dress she still had that pen she wore occasionally 
She's very old when she retired. She taught my father. She taught two of my sons and she taught me. And this button she had saved over from the days of prohibition. She worked hard in that campaign. And it said, lips that touch wine shall not touch mine. <laughs> and as she was preaching to us, boys and girls, I said, but Miss Johnson, you told us last week that Jesus turned water into wine. And she said, yes, Morris. But we'd have thought a whole lot more of him if he hadn't have done that. <laughs> we persevered and we made it. It was a conservative little community I grew up in. And as I was thinking, flying here today about what I might talk about because the published message is supposed to be responding to hate voices of hope and tolerance and I hope you'll forgive me because I want to change my subject based on what's going on in this nation today and I'd like to talk about a place at America's table. We have a new president and we're not sure what Mr. Bush will do. We know what he's done so far. He has appointed an attorney general who is from a, a very conservative religious sect who seems to be very hostile towards gays and lesbians, who seems to be very hostile towards minorities, especially African-Americans, and also on issues of choice that concern millions of women in this country. At least his past records show that he's rather arbitrary. We've seen our new president talk about faith-based contributions to organizations, faith-based organizations to go into our community and try to uh, take up some of the slack maybe that government is doing. We have seen him promote and encourage an educational system that calls for vouchers whereby public school children can be sent to private schools with vouchers and we don't know whether that'll come to pass and we don't know the detrimental effect that it'll have on public education just a couple of days ago I read in the New York Times that he had eliminated at least from the office in the White House the office of race and one dealing with AIDS and aid research, etc. And then I think he said that was a misslip, but that might not happen. And his tax cut plan appears, according to some people, to favor the very wealthy, even though he trots out as props middle-income families who are supposed to benefit. But we as a, a nation that has peaceful transitions of power in this country and we saw a very bitter end for an election, we're willing to give Mr. Bush and his people a fair chance. But the things that he has already said and done so far and the people he's put in positions of power can't be taken in the abstract. They have to be set against a very changing America. We have a country 
that's moving quickly towards the time by the year 2050 when people like myself and most of you in this audience will be in a minority. And if we're to keep a participatory form of government where the majority rules, there are going to be some major changes in how we allocate the economic goods and services of this nation, health care, education, and other things. Also, we see a time in this country when there's a lot of ill wind blowing across our land, in spite of the many good things about America. Five years ago, there was one hate site on the web. Today, there are over 450. Some of you may have seen HBO's show, Hate.com. I was privileged to narrate. It'll be back on again in April. The FBI tells us that over 10,000 hate crimes was committed in America last year. And they range from horrible murder and bludgeoning and the tragedies that involve shooting up innocent little Jewish children in a daycare center in Los Angeles to other tragic things down to simply painting racial epitaphs on tombstones and on the homes of interracial couples and others. Also in this country today we find that about half our people don't even vote. We find that there's an enormous dissatisfaction with the politics as usual. Your state is a classic example. The son of the great Hubert Humphrey came in third in a governor's race and you elected Mr. Ventura an independent. Ralph Nader, even though he didn't score well in the election, he was the only candidate that people would pay to come to hear. He could have 10 to 15,000 people paying 10 to $20 each to come listen as he talks about the ills of this nation and some of the problems and how we allocate that economic power of this country. The two main candidates, Mr. Bush and Mr. Gore, would have to pay money to get 10,000 people to come, not have them pay them. You know, I think the bottom line is this whole question of fairness and justice. I lived through a time in this nation in the Deep South when America had strayed far from its ideals of justice. Dr. Martin Luther King led a great movement in this country and as he went around this nation not just in the South he reminded us that the desire for fair treatment and justice has burned in the hearts of men and women since the beginning of time. I remember so well the lesson of fairness and justice I learned in our little cotton farm back in Alabama when my daddy would come home from the cotton fields and he would stop by the country store and he'd bring one candy bar for my sister and I to split. Our favorite was a Baby Ruth candy bar. You probably know it. And you can't divide it evenly like you can the Hershey bar that you can break along scored lines. And he would give that to my sister and he would say, now Carolyn, you, you cut this in half and let your brother choose the half he wants. Well, let me tell you, she'd get out a ruler because she had a deep sense of justice in terms of chocolate and peanuts. When Dr. King went around this country, he tried to drive home the point of the effects on a nation that wonders 
away from or strays from its sense of justice and fairness. And he told an old story from 900 years B.C. The children of Israel had wandered in the desert and other places after being freed as slaves in Egypt. They'd been tormented and persecuted. And finally, they ended up building a city. They called it a city-state then, near the present site of Jerusalem. And they prospered. They built high walls around this city to protect those inside. And the marketplaces were filled with goods brought in from surrounding areas. And those in that town that prospered had nice building lots. And they got homes that were fine homes that overlooked the fertile valleys. And they had an education system and a court system and a law enforcement system. But there was a farmer who came in from a neighboring area to bring his goods in to sell early in the morning every week. And what he saw bothered him. As he drove his wagon in laden with produce to sell, stopped at those big gates before day waiting for them to open, he saw able-bodied men and women begging for food. And upon inquiry, he found that they wanted to work, but there wasn't necessarily, they weren't able to find jobs because maybe they weren't with the right group and didn't know the right people. Today we might call that job discrimination or favoritism. And then when he went into the marketplace and set up his stall, he heard grumbling among the people there about being mistreated in the court system and by the people who enforce the laws. He said sometimes they told him, you get arrested or you get in trouble where other people who did the same thing didn't get in trouble. Today we might call that racial profiling. And that bothered this farmer because he wanted these people to succeed. And he called for an audience among the leaders because he was a man of some respect. And you know this farmer. He was the prophet Amos. And he stood before those leaders in a town hall meeting much like this and said, you know, you got to treat everybody fair. If you intend to have the goods that you have now and the wonderful things and to pass them down to future generations, your children, your grandchildren, you got to give everybody at least an equal shot, an equal opportunity. And he spoke to them the words that Dr. King used so often as he spoke to us in our nation when he walked among us. He said, don't be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters. Well, in America today, we have those that are dissatisfied. We have grumbling we have those, on the other hand, who are fearful of those people who are different. And we have conflicts. We have a battle going on today. Battle may not be a good word. A better word might be we have before us an issue going on 
as, and the issue would be, whose America is this? And whose version of America is going to prevail into the next century? And that battle is being fought out in the halls of Congress to the city hall of this town over how we're going to divide up the things we have in this nation. And it is a heated battle. We just went through a heated election when the issues were not twiddle-dee, twiddle-dum. They were serious issues, and this nation was divided right down the middle, 50-50. And it's up to this president that we have now who did not get a majority of the popular vote to rule all of us fair and justly. There are people who feel very strongly about their version of America. They feel strong enough to load a truck with 4,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, soak with diesel fuel, drive it up in front of a federal building and explode it with no thought to the innocent people inside, men, women, and children. And when Timothy McVeigh drove away from the Murrah Federal Building, it might come as a shock to you, he thought of himself as a hero as a patriot, as a good soldier, making sure that his version of this nation prevailed. From the spectrum of those people who deal in the political arena to those who commit horrible hate crimes, we're still all engaged in this question of whose America is this? And what version of our nation is going to survive? I handled a case that deals with an issue very similar to this. After the Vietnam War, approximately 50,000 Vietnamese refugees were settled in the Galveston Bay, Texas area and others in other parts of this nation, but 50,000 were settled there by Catholic Relief Services working with our government. And these people these refugees from communism who had fought on our side, who was exposed to sure death had they stayed, began to work hard. Most of them came literally with the clothes on their backs. They quickly left our welfare rolls. Few, few even got on them in the first place. And they began to set up various kinds of businesses, flower shops, fruit stands, car wash businesses, and about 50 of that group decided to get into fishing business, particularly the shrimping business. Things that they had done and were familiar with back in the warm waters of Saigon Harbor back in Vietnam. And they had no money for boats, so they bought old broken down American fishing boats. Many of them had been sunk up to the waterline, up in these harbors. There were some 1,200 American fishing boats in Galveston Bay area at the time. They had these fancy very expensive boats. And so these Vietnamese people bought the cheap boats and fixed them up and worked hard and truthfully, they outfished the American fishermen. And the American fishermen got very upset and angry. Some because of strange ways of these people that looked different, but who worked hard. So they went to the Texas legislature and said, please pass a law to stop issuing fishing permits to aliens that come into this country. And the Texas legislature, in its wisdom, said no. They have the right to fish. And a very disgruntled group of American fishermen, some hundred, set up an association 
And then they called on the Ku Klux Klan to come in and run these new Americans out of the bay. Shrimping season was to open on April 15, 1981. About a week or so, three weeks or so before, some of the Klan leaders got together with the American fishermen, held big rallies, and threatened to burn the Vietnamese fishing boats in their docks where they placed them and blow them out of the water if they went out to sea to frighten them. And about 10 days before the shrimping season opened, two Vietnamese boats in a harbor were burned to the waterline. The Vietnamese fishermen got very concerned. A lawyer called who represented them in real estate matters. I flew down, I met with the Vietnamese fishermen, and they agreed that we could represent them in the suit against the American Fishermen Commission and the, and the Viet and the Klan and others. We got special rights for the court to move quickly to get an injunction to enjoin the Klan and their American fishing friends from interfering with these Vietnamese. We had good evidence coming forward of how the Klan had threatened American fishermen that owned docks and harbors that allowed these Vietnamese to park their boats there, that if they let them continue to park their boats there, they would burn their harbors down. The FBI and the ATF helped us gather this evidence. About two days before the trial, I got a call from Nguyen Van Nam, leader of the Vietnamese Fishermen Association. And he said, Mr. Dees, drop lawsuit. I said, oh no, no Nam, we got a good case. And I reviewed the evidence and I told him about particular one American woman, a white woman who was gonna come terrified, but she was gonna come and testify how she was threatened if she continued to let them use her, her harbor. I said, could you think that you could give me an opportunity to speak to those Vietnamese fishermen in your association? Well, later that evening, time was of the essence. I found myself in a small Catholic church with a priest interpreting. Some 50 or so Vietnamese fishermen and their families sat listening, many dressed in the native clothes they came to this country with. And I talked to them about America. I said, you know, America's a country that allows an opportunity for all of its people, not just those in power and those who are majority people. We have a court system that protects you. And this federal judge will issue a powerful injunction if we win our case. Don't run now. Don't quit. They wanted to put their boats up for sale. And they had told me earlier that they had been warned to drop this lawsuit because the other Vietnamese felt that they would then, if they didn't drop this lawsuit, they might have to be, be forced by the Klan out of their fruit stands and their flower markets and their restaurants and all the other businesses they had. And so they were frightened. And I said, you know, our court system will issue an injunction to protect you if we win, and I feel we will. But they're going to run you out of all these businesses if you go now, here, and quit. And I told him about 
Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and the leaders of the civil rights movement and how they also were terrorized and terrified. How their churches were bombed and burned and yet they kept the faith and used our court system to good avail. And had they quit, they might not have had their rights as soon as they did. I left and later that night I got a call from Nguyen Van Nam who said, continue lawsuit. We presented our case before the judge and the day before shrimping season opened, she issued a very powerful injunction against named clan leaders and American fishermen leaders, threatening them with prison if they interfered with the Vietnamese right to fish. I was invited by the Vietnamese fishermen community to come down to the opening of the shrimping season when they had the blessing of the fleet. And as these, I went down, it was about like, I guess five in the morning, it was still dark. Went down to Kemer, Texas, where Clear Creek Channel comes out into the bay there. I stood there, the priest and the families of the Vietnamese fishermen. This was a custom they had in Vietnam. I couldn't see any boats, the fog was hanging heavy, but I could hear a diesel engine come out up the creek, out into the harbor. In a few moments, through the fog, popped the first boat. The priest blessed that boat. And then another, and then another, until about 15 boats, boats had finally come through the fog. The sun began to burn the fog away. And as I looked to my right and I looked to my left, along the edges of the bay there, I could see the sun glistening off, reflecting off the badges of the United States Marshals who had been sent there by the court. And as I watched these immigrants, these new Americans there, finding their place at America's table, I can't tell you how proud I felt to be a lawyer and a citizen of our great nation. And I hope that it's not lost on those in power in this nation today that this cry for fairness and justice and this desire for fair treatment still burns in the hearts of all of us. Regardless of whether we are in the majority, regardless of the color of our skin or which class we are, or whether we're gay or lesbian, or whether we're handicapped or not, or old, or young. All the differences that separate us in this country. Because if America is going to maintain the freedoms we have and the good things we have to pass down to future generations, it'll be because we continue to be fair. There have been dark days before in this nation. I remember one of those, 1963. Dr. King was 10 days out of the Birmingham jail. 
I was three years out of the University of Alabama Law School. And shortly after he was released from jail, a group of Klansmen tied 10 sticks of dynamite together and placed them in the 16th Street Baptist Church. And four little Sunday school girls lost their lives simply because of the color of their skin. But Dr. King then, long before he was a national hero, there'd been no Voting Rights Act that 1965 or other civil rights laws passed. They were all blocked by powerful men in Congress. Dr. King, though, in that dark day, had faith in all of us. Those who were among us then and those to come in the future. And he expressed that faith. He went to Washington, D.C. and stood with a quarter of a million people at his feet on the mall. And with millions watching on television, and he expressed that faith. He said that one day, in the red clay hills of Georgia, that the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will sit down around the table of brotherhood. A lot has happened since Dr. King left us. The issues have changed. We've taken three steps forward and two steps back. I doubt if Dr. King would recognize the landscape. But if I think, if he was here today, I think he'd still have faith in this nation and all of us. To ensure that America will live up to its dreams of equal opportunity and equality. And if he is making that speech today, I think he might say that I have a dream that one day in the red clay hills of Georgia, and he might add today, in the barrios, in the ghettos, on the reservations, and in the seats of economic and political and judicial power of this nation, that the sons and daughters of former slaves and the sons and daughters of former slave owners, and today, he might add, the homeless, the powerless, the poor, and those who hold the keys to the economic and political and judicial power of this nation will sit down around the table of personhood and truly learn to love one another. And I have faith too in us. And I wish our new president the best. And I hope that he will heed the message of the prophet Amos and the Reverend Dr. King and all people throughout time who've cried out for justice and fairness and that he will not be satisfied in this nation till justice does roll down like waters. Thank you very much. Thank you, Morris Dees. For the benefit of our listening audience, I would point out that you've just received a standing ovation. We deeply appreciate what you've done here today. 
You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Morris Dees, who has just spoken on the topic of who is welcome at the table in America. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to thank the McKnight and Star Tribune Foundations for their sponsorship of today's forum. Mr. Dees, if you would return to the podium, we will begin the questions. Thank, thank you for your kind applause. And let me say this, I want to thank those among you who contribute to the work of the center. Without your support, we wouldn't make our, our work wouldn't be possible. There's some 500,000 people around the nation that support our work. And today, over 80,000 schools in this country use our teaching tolerance materials, videos, text, teachers' guides, and other things. We welcome you to Montgomery, Alabama to visit the Civil Rights Memorial that, designed by Ma Lin, that lists the names and, and stories of the 40 men, women, and children that died. And I hope that over the next several years, you can take part in the National Campaign for Tolerance that I'm honored to co-chair with Mrs. Rosa Parks. We're looking for five million people to take a pledge for tolerance, and we'll send each one of them a free tolerance kit, Citizens Action Kit. Come April 1st, the Law Center will launch its new website called tolerance.org, and I hope you'll check it out. Mr. Dees, this is a question about uh, what motivated you to get into the work in which you pursued. Was there a defining event in your youth that has led you to this lifetime path toward justice and equality? If so, what was it? Well, you know, it's kind of hard to know why anybody does anything. Uh, I guess probably it was having uh, good parents. Uh, we just, we were tenant farmers. We didn't own any land. We got a small piece before when I was a teenager. And my dad and, and mom set so many examples about fair treatment of people as I grew up. They weren't liberals or progressives. They just simply were conservatives. They just simply were poor country folks. And defining moments, gosh only knows, I think it's like water dripping on a rock. I think there are a lot of little things. And one of them did deal with water. I thought about it. I was in a cotton field one day, and I, I was the water boy. And, uh, and I had to walk about a mile to a well to get a bucket of water to get back to the people chopping the grass out of the cotton. And when I arrived there, the first person to drink was this black lady. She took a dipper. We didn't have paper cups or nothing. She just took a dipper and took a, took a drink of water. And then she put the dipper back in the bucket. And my daddy was the next person in line with his hoe chopping grass. And he reached in, got a dipper. And that may not seem like much to you today, but we had separate water fountains in the South at the time. And I think little things like that ended up, I think, being the key thing. And I got out of law school to practice in Montgomery just to make a living being a lawyer because my daddy said do anything but raise cotton. You know, there's always something bothering a cotton plant. And um, anyway, so I did, started practicing law. And the people that came to see me were, quite frankly, the people I grew up with, poor people, African-Americans, white people that lived in my community and, uh, and I started taking on their cases and it was necessary sometimes to represent them right to go against the powers to be like integrating the Alabama state troopers for a young man who they wouldn't even give an application to and integrating the Montgomery YMCA because they wouldn't let black kids go to their summer swim camps and those kind of things didn't make me you know popular there in that time in Montgomery but at the, but you know looking back on it though you know those were kind of 
incidences. And I guess that if I've gained any wealth practicing law, it would be what I've gotten from my clients' satisfaction to represent them and the kind of, the kind of thing you can't take to the bank, but at the same time, it, it certainly enriches your life. Given what you've experienced from hate groups, how would you reflect on the ethical imperative to love your enemy? I think that's a very important uh, uh, imperative, not just in, in our Christian religion or the, the uh, Jewish faith or the Muslim faith, but every faith that I've ever read about, that I think it's, uh, it, it's the imperative. And one of the problems that we have in this country is that people don't listen to each other. I grew up with people who were in the Ku Klux Klan. My uncle kept a Klan robe hanging in the back of his closet at his country store. And I, so I knew, I know these folks. And in every single case we've ever won, including the Vietnamese fisherman case, and most recently the one against the Aryan nations, my star witnesses have been members of the group. And not necessarily the leaders, never have I gotten a leader to come out, but some of the members, people who had been led astray by their teachings, people who were who had they been had a, a labor union gotten a hold of them or a Boy Scout troop, they'd have made good leaders in those organizations too. And there were people who were just looking and searching and I was able to talk to them and uh, mainly particularly young people. But I think if had I had a bad attitude towards them in general, then I probably wouldn't have been able to talk to them. I find that most people in these groups are not bad people. They're just people who are angry and frustrated. A lot of them maybe because they feel they hadn't had a fair chance at a a good opportunity in this country and maybe they look at somebody else in a scapegoat fashion that they believe probably robbed them of some opportunity they had. And I think in this country today if we to deal with the militia groups, the hate groups, but I think let's be more realistic, those people in the minority in this country, they're a fragment of our population. But people that come from the the background of Mr. Ashcroft, they represent a much, much larger group of people people that are in the Christian coalition and Pat Robinson's followers, I think it's important that we engage those people on a one-to-one on a -one basis also, even though they might not agree with what this congregation teaches. The Internet has provided a new avenue for hate groups to disseminate their messages and to proselytize. How do we respond to this threat? How do we challenge this threat without violating the First Amendment? Well, first of all, there's no way to censor the internet effectively because it now crosses not just state borders but world borders. It's, an, it's the worldwide method of communications and it's a wonderful system and I'm sure when Gutenberg first invented the printing press, if he really did, I read an article in the New York Times challenging even that, but, but if he really did, whoever did, uh, I'm sure there are people around who had those uh, lambskins uh, they wrote on and the quills and things were terrified that the message would get out quicker and they didn't have any control over it anymore. So it, nothing, you know, there are people who burn books too trying to stop the message from getting out in different countries. I think the internet was what our founders of this country envisioned when they created the First Amendment. I think they had it specifically in mind and Mr. Gore didn't, wasn't operating back then. Because it wasn't the few little newspapers in the, in the colonies that King George feared. What in those? They could control those. They knew who printed those. It was the people who went down to the Boston Commons and posted a notice on the bulletin board all around in the night anonymously passing out pamphlets, 
common sense pamphlets and other things. That's what, scared, that's what the First Amendment's about. And that's what the Internet's about. A hate group can post its notices, but so can we. That's why we have tolerance.org. And I think, that, I think that the best way to deal with this hate groups is to educate our young people that more, there's two sides to a story and, and not be frightened about it, but use it, in, use it in an effective way. There are over 450 hate websites a day, and I, you, know, you probably would never want to look at one of them, but they slice and dice hate every way you can imagine, and they have a, a, a pretty big following. Is there another state or nation from which our country could learn more about tolerance and diversity and justice? Are there, in your estimation, any such models among the nations that you'd regard as good to emulate? Well, I just read a story in the New York Times today uh, of, a, of a town in England. I think it was Leicester. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correct. And I challenge you to read it because this is the first time in England that's gone from majority white to majority non-white. And uh, apparently the people there the, uh, of the different minority groups say that, that they have, have received enormous fair treatment. Uh, but I don't know that I could totally hold England up as a perfect example because nobody's perfect. You know, my Irish kinfolks would not think so. So, you know, I think that we have, I think that to look to another country and try to make a comparison is probably wouldn't serve us a, a lot of good anyway, because we, you know, we have the United Nations where people all gather together. The Aboriginal people lived in Australia for 50,000 years before Captain Cook got there to find out, you know, that there was another way. And I understand they lived rather peacefully. Many, many groups, clans scattered all over the country. And later in their history books, they were surprised to find out that Captain Cook was the first guy to cross the continent. Uh, in America, you know, Native American tribes all over this country, uh, you know, lived for a long time, and many, most of them in peace, and was able to get along with each other. But, you know, we find ourselves in the boat we're in today, and America's the longest living democracy that I think history has recorded, where people have the right to make the kind of decisions we do, and vote, etc. We're not perfect. There are deficiencies, and in, in any time you get people together, you know, dictators solve problems in the short run because one person's deciding everything, and if you've got a good dictator, that works for a little while. But, you know, I wouldn't trade our system of government, our jury system, our, for anything. And there are people in this country who are uh, minorities who can say, but yeah, hey, man, the playing field's not level here, uh, you know, and women didn't even have the right to vote until, you know, a short time ago in the history of this nation. But that's not to say that you ought to scrap the country. We've got to continue working towards making this nation great. And, you know, it's not, you, you can't look back to Mr. Clinton or Mr. Eisenhower or Mr. Kennedy and all this gone, that's history. The question is, what are we going to do from here forward? And that's why I, I changed my subject today to, uh, to challenge the new administration to try to represent all of us and to keep striving towards the goal that Dr. King believed was possible in this nation, where all of us could sit down together. Following up on your comments about the new president, in your remarks you mentioned our president's proposal to provide school vouchers that could be used for students to attend private schools. We know education is critical to your work. Do you see a special role for public education? Well, first of all, I think public education is wonderful and so is private. In the Deep South, long before we had a, an issue of integrated schools, it was just the law, the South had some very fine private schools. 
in private schools. Uh, you know, Harvard's a private school, and it was the first university founded in America, and it certainly had a sterling reputation, and it is not involved with the state. Got, there are places for both, but this school voucher thing talks about a $1,300, you know, payment or credit or something for private schools. Well, those of you who know private schools know that wouldn't get you much past the lunchroom and the, and the, and the books. What it really means is those people are going to send their kids to private school just going to get a bonus for doing it, and those who are not can't come up with the other five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars it takes to get a child there. In the meantime, though, it will affect the amount of public support for, for public schools. You know, I'm a public school person, and probably most of you in here are just based on the age. I figure most of you are just looking out across the audience. And, and, you know, and I think we felt we fared well. Your state has a pretty decent public school system. I was a desert because public education is certainly in the mouth of all the politicians, but they don't, they don't live it. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, that the giant melting pot of this nation probably started in our school systems, and that's where most people got out of their household and went and met somebody different. And, I, and I'm, I'm very much in favor of a strong public school system, but also one that's accountable. Sociologist argues that an important factor in understanding the senseless acts of violence committed by male children in our country is the perpetrator's sense of being treated unfairly. He also makes the point that many of the violent youth have connections to the Deep South, where racial injustice has been so long entrenched. Would you care to comment? Well, I don't know what connection the violent youths in Columbine had to the Deep South. Uh, and I think, I think that might be a stereotype there concerning the Deep South. But if you look at acts of, uh, of school violence, and that's an issue that we're no experts in, you find that it's all over the nation. It's not a regional problem. In fact, not much of it's in the South. And what we find is that most all of it's been committed by white males, at least the one, those that we're paying attention to. There may be other acts of violence committed by males of minority groups that we don't get a lot of attention to in their communities every day all over the nation, so their leaders say. But what, what you're finding out is, is uh, you know, I'm no sociologist or psychologist or whatever, but it, these are, these are uh, young males who uh, feel in some way that they're losers, even though they might be superficially succeeding. They're the kids that don't look like they're going to be a problem. Nobody, people are shocked to find out that they got their granddaddy's gun or uncle's gun and shot up a bunch of people in their school. But they're, they're young people that probably showed the signs and if there's anything that I've read about it that makes a difference, it appears to be that the way we raise our boys in America, and all of them don't turn out bad, some of them do less violent things, and some of them do great things, but we don't give them the same freedom to feel a release of tension that women feel, the young girls do. They don't uh, hold hands as much, they don't cry as much, they don't express their feelings, they internalize them, they gotta be a man, they gotta be tough. And what happens, there's a point at which they simply explode, and that, taken out against other people. A lot of them have low self-esteem, and yet they, they're living in homes that have, you know, two to three cars in the parking lot, and both parents are working, and both have college degrees. I mean, you know the story. It's a serious issue. It's one that ought to be addressed by families first, schools second. Uh, we, have, we have a publication for schools entitled Responding to Violence in Schools, and we, our teaching tolerance program passes thousands of copies out. We try, to, we try to help teachers pick out the signs of this first, to pick the bully out and deal with the bully in the class that might be picking on other kids who then later can't strike back in a way that they feel like they can and not necessarily against the bully.
This will be the last question. What do you see as important legal movements lying ahead for the Southern Poverty Law Center and other groups in the future? Well, there are a lot of groups in this country doing great work in civil rights. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center doesn't have a specific agenda. We'll continue to bring cases against hate groups where we find victims of the hate groups that, that have been harmed and where the hate groups that do it have something that we can seize, not just some paper victory. Uh, on the other hand, we're working on lots of other issues in this nation. We just argued a case before the U.S. Supreme Court Tuesday, last Tuesday, two weeks ago, concerning an English-only statute that said the state passed a law that you can only take your driver's license test and other things in English-only, uh, kind of xenophobic approach that, that we're seeing in the country today. And we won the case in the federal courts below, and it'll be up to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide whether we're able to continue that. It's going to be argued on a narrow issue of whether the person can sue the state and not so much about the law itself, but the, the fact of this stupid law, uh, because the state that passed this law has 10 signs on one, uh, entering one of its cities and has a sign in 10 different languages welcoming people to the town, but yet, you know, yet they have this law passed. We've, we're trying our best to encourage the few southern states that have a Confederate flag to, to remove them. We filed a suit in Alabama that brought that state's flag down. Georgia was facing a suit that we were probably going to be a part of. Uh, we'd been helping the lawyers on it. Thank goodness they changed that one. And, and South Carolina at least moved it to a different location. I think Mississippi is the only remaining state. Those symbols are significant to a lot of people, but we can't lose sight that those are just symbols. Below, beneath those symbols are a whole lot of other issues that are, that are is equally and much more serious. But when the back of the bus is black and the front is white, you can certainly see the difference. But there are a lot of issues concerning education, health care, that are gray issues. They're not as simple. And that's why people cling to issues like the flag, because you can see it. But we shouldn't lose sight of the other more serious issues in the country. Thank you, Mr. Dees.